Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for April 6th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Mr. Evan Kelly, what are we doing here today? Well, Joe, we are going to discuss a few topics. We're going to try to examine them from all sides, making sure that we are striving for good faith discussion of all ideas and making sure to keep everyone adequately informed. Are you? Would you say that we're going to be fair and balanced? Well, by calling ourselves fair and balanced, we can then marginalize anyone who opposes us as radical. So yeah, we're fair and balanced. Okay, so we staked out that claim. We yep, are, we are on the, the ivory ones. tower. Yep. Okay. But we are only human. We may not be fair and balanced. Um, and I don't really think anybody is, but let's uh that's just an aside. And uh we try to come at things with good faith, try to give ideas their due diligence, try not to be ass hats, but I we're all prone to being ass hats. So anyway, Evan. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? In the wake of a lot of the quarantining, sheltering in place, self-isolation, social distancing, whatever you want to call it, I think that we are all starting to look around our houses and ask, hey, what's around here that I could entertain myself with? And for me, and I suspect a lot of people, I have been turning to some old video games. So we're going to talk about uh, some of the video games that I've been playing and uh, just see how it goes. It's It's been entertaining for me, and we're going to talk about it. Okay. So, all right. What have without, you been playing, Evan? <laughs> without further ado, here are Evan Kelly's top five Nintendo GameCube games for quarantine. The number five is the original Animal Crossing. You know, a lot of people have been talking about this new Animal Crossing. I don't have a Nintendo Switch. They're, they're very hard to come by now because everybody's been been playing them and playing them. I got a black market game. switch. Ooh, what'd that yeah. run you? Oh, 270. I, I, so I, I got it from a guy who I, 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 I had a guy who knew a guy. Oh yeah. You're a switch guy. Yeah. I had a, I have a switch guy. Came, came straight from Japan. Uh, sure. All right. Uh, but the original animal crossing is the game that kind of started it all. And I would, I would love to play the new ones, but you know, there's something to be said for just uh, running around the little town, getting off on that train, and uh, going to work, picking some weeds, you know? Uh, in, in a world where we can't necessarily go outside and enjoy our full complement of activities, at least in Animal Crossing, you can, you can get that uh, experience. Talk to your neighbors, teach them new catchphrases. It's good times. Have you been playing the new one on the Switch, or what have you been doing with your Switch? Yes, that is the only thing I got it for, was the new <laughs> Animal Crossing. Do you still get to uh, name your town? Yeah. Well, you, you name an What's island. Your... Oh, um, a whole island. Okay. Yeah. It's a small island. I think it's about the... I, I have never played an Animal Crossing before, so I don't. I'm not familiar with the franchise otherwise. But I wanted to go with Jim's Last Stand, but that was too long. So now it's just Jim's Lass, and uh, I think it's fitting. All right. Yeah. And you're enjoying it? You never played Animal Crossing before. What's it like for a first-timer? Yeah, it's fun to have a new grind. 
every <laughs> once in a while you need a new game that has a new grind that you can just do for a little bit to take your mind off of things. Yeah, I, I did some weed picking last night. It was pretty legit. <laughs> Hunting down those bells from Tom Nook. Oh, yeah. It's really easy to get bells, it, it seems to me at least, but... Maybe I'm just uh, grinding a little bit, but you just got to live within your means. Very simple. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. But um, number four is a classic Super Smash Brothers Melee. This, um, you know, is the second in the Smash Bros series overall and considered one of the best and most popular. Um, I've been playing some some Brawl as well, but that's that doesn't fit into the whole theme of GameCube games. So, um I'm finding that I'm normally I'm kind of like a Pikachu guy, but uh, I think that in with with how melee is set up, I'm, I've been doing really well with Fox. He's kind of got some good speed. Um, his side smashes are strong enough that he can do, still do some damage, but without being as as heavy and slow as like a Donkey Kong or a Bowser. And he's got uh, that gun, so he can have some ranged attacks too. So. Fox Fox has been doing good. Oh, Fox is objectively the best character in Melee. Like oh, all is he? the pro all the pros use Fox. Okay. Or well, at I'm least when they would play it competitively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fifteen years later. Hey, Fox I, is doing really good. <laughs> hey, look, Pikachu's got the Thunderbolt. That's 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 what I care about. Mm. Um because I know it changes, you know, in, in Brawl, isn't it Meta Knight that's like the top tier guy? Maybe. I don't know. Okay. Number three has been uh, Madden 2007. And I think that uh, this is the best Madden. It's the one with Sean Alexander on the cover. Um, it's got uh, very intuitive controls. I never like QB vision, so I don't do it. But, um, you know, you got uh, you got a very detailed and realistic franchise mode that you can control. So, you know, you have to actually work out contracts and signing bonuses and dead money cap hits. And so it's, it's been very fun for a guy who read caponomics and, and uh, digested all of that. Um, this is a game I played so much as a kid that I wore through my disc and Lindsay had to buy me a new one for my birthday. <laughs> um, so that's been fun. Um, just, you know, getting back into it, trying to win some championships, creating uh, a character named Evan Kelly, who is the best quarterback in the league. All oh, the things course. you do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> What's the point if you're not the quarterback of the Chicago Bears winning a Super Bowl, right? I mean, I thought it, it went on set. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got you have the power, so you, you have to. You have a responsibility right. to yourself, to your virtual yeah. self. Yeah, that's, that's self-care. That's, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for real, though. Um, number two game is a bit of a dark horse pick, but I'm going to go with NBA Live 2003. Uh, I never really played a lot of the other NBA games, so I don't know if it's objectively the best, but it's the one that I've got. It's got Jason Kidd on the cover, and you want to talk about a game where you can just kind of grind and not pay attention and still do okay. This is that. It's so easy to control. The controls are so simplistic. I know everyone, you know, the, the, the 2K series has kind of one out as the top NBA franchise game, but NBA Live 03, you can just shoot some threes, you know, you dunk a little bit. If you put it on anything other than the hardest mode, you cannot lose. 
Um, and even <laughs> then, it's pretty hard to lose. Um, again, you know, you can make Evan Kelly and he can dominate. Um, you can make him seven feet tall, which is awesome. Uh, and just a great game to zen out to. I usually put on some podcasts and just play for hours because, you know, y- you can. It's fun yeah. for me. I enjoy it. If you can get that, like, zone out ability in something, I find that very valuable. Like, oh, yeah. I find I find in so many things, unless I'm, like, procrastinating, I, I have a hard time getting into anything. Um, there's something about like having the wide world of every possibility in front of you that it's like, oh, well now that I can just do it. I don't want to do it. I'm not interested. (laughs) I don't want to watch this show. I don't want to play this game, play it for five minutes and like, ugh, I'm over it. So if you can, I, I, I very much prize that being able to just get sucked into something. You need to be able to just sort of give your mind a rest. Your brain works through problems when you just sort of have it on in the background. If you're always on, you're always focused on stuff, you're not going to be as productive. And this is backed up by scientific research. you got to be able to turn it off. You just have to. NBA Live 2003 does that for me. Like I just imagine sometimes when – you know, you're the, your mind is the embodiment of kind of the Harlem Globetrotters whistling music while they're playing, <laughs> you know, doing their basketball. Maybe I'll cut that out, but just oh, yeah, kind we'll, of we'll, a care- we'll work on the whistling later. <laughs> yeah, a carefree, a carefree whistle going on in the background. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, indeed, and good job keeping with the basketball motif very very big ups to that so my number one gamecube game for quarantine is muppets party cruise this is probably the best game ever created for the gamecube uh it is just a party game you're you're all the muppets characters and you're stuck on this ship you have to work your way up from like the dregs of the ship to first class and on the way you play mini games they're very simple but very fun mini games and you can play by yourself you can play with a group and um probably the most addicting party game that i've ever played and the party game on which i've logged the most hours in my entire life Nice. Mini games are great, you know, because if there's a big enough stable of mini games, you can rotate through, not get bored, and end up killing a lot of time that way. Oh, yeah. Muppets Party Cruise. We're all just trying to figure out how to time warp. Just <laughs> I plug myself into this and then whoop, make it out the other end. When this, so, uh, when this whole thing will be over, everybody wants to live in click for a little bit. here is my profound realization that came up while i was researching this segment most of the good gamecube games that you probably remember if you had a gamecube as a child all came out between 2002 and 2003 good time for games yeah everything has sort of a window where you can do the best work in it and if you were making a nintendo gamecube game Working for Nintendo, that window was the years 2002 and 2003. So 
it's always interesting to think about how windows of opportunity open and close. But yeah. you know, maybe that's maybe that's thinking too much for something that's supposed to just be zoning my mind out. Um, I don't have you know the latest PlayStation, Xbox, whatever. Can't really play online with people, but thank goodness I've got a, a good stable of these old games to keep me company. Joe, what have you been playing besides the Animal Crossing? Fortnite. Yeah, I guess that'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> but see, growing up growing up as a Nintendo kid and not having any of the other systems, you know, there's not really any first-person shooters or any of that style of game available for Nintendo consoles, or at least there wasn't when I was a kid, not widely available. And so I was severely lacking in FPS skills when I would try to play against my friends at their houses and so I just I never developed a taste for it because it sucked to play because I would always just die so well I didn't I didn't have any consoles growing up I think our first console was a Wii and you know you did bowling with that <laughs> um, I had a computer so I mostly played management games like Roller Coaster Tycoon um, if that says anything about what my future life would be like <laughs> But no, I didn't start playing FPSs until I was in in high late late middle school, when I had to save up to get an Xbox, and then I got one and I played Halo and it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I suck at Halo so badly. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I never Just could. I never got practice. the hang of it. Yeah. Well, how am I supposed to practice with no Xbox? Well, that's that's you know. That, that's on you but anyway <laughs> yeah i've been right. playing uh fortnite been playing dead by daylight with the boys some rainbow six siege it's been a good time for uh games with the boys when everybody's just home all day and they're like you want a game and i'm like yeah i want a game <laughs> i could actually, of course i do i could be gaming right now i think the boys are gaming right now and i'm not part of it i'm recording the podcast so y'all better listen to this so video games, they can endure for 15 years, it turns out. The good ones can anyway. And that's all there is to say about that. Good. Joseph. Evan. What would you like to talk about on this fine day? Oh, I may have picked something a little too expansive, but we'll see once we get into it. So... I, this is since we are in times of uncertain economic terms, and we've talked about it on the previous two podcasts about recessions and uh, what to do about it. I have had some thoughts about it, had some people ask to explain basic economics, which I think I could do. And I also have some ideas percolating that may be helpful could have been helpful in a situation like this that is a combination of some big things that people have been talking about for a while. So, ooh, that was just the mission statement. Let's get into it. Um, so on a base level, economic economies are people buying and selling things. And I know this is so small, so simple, so little it's like yeah of course people buy and sell things but it is a, a way to look at 
an economy in a way that makes sense, especially in this time of recession that we're going into caused by the coronavirus. So on a base level for an economy, for commerce to be happening, people both need to be able to buy things and people need to be able to sell things in order for economic activity to occur. One thing that we are running into an issue, well, what we're running into an issue now is that both people are not able to sell things because they aren't able to produce things because everybody has to stay home and because everybody has to stay home and not earn money, they can't go and buy things. So this is affecting both the supply and the demand side of economies. And when you don't have people, when you have people not buying things, then that's also people not earning money. And then when people aren't earning money, they're also not buying things. Now, macroeconomics is difficult because if you were to truly model out an economy, you would have to <laughs> model out every transaction that was made from you know, bought the United States buying a aircraft, an aircraft carrier to you grabbing a stick of gum in a gas station. That's all part of the economy. But economic growth is when people are spending more money than they normally would. Now, we know from research that people only, you know, only spend so much on basic necessities that only cost so much. And then from there, people start to spend money on luxury goods. And what happens in time of recession is that people will flip, you know, when there's uncertainty, they'll flip from spending their money on things that they want to spend them on that are a little bit more frivolous, a little bit more luxury item and clamp down and save money while only spending money on the necessities, which makes an economy worse. So part of the issue that we're running up against is that with all these people losing their incomes from jobs or uh, not being able to work as much or furloughed or not being able to spend their money, is that there's a huge gap of what the economy can do versus what it's doing currently. Now, part of it would be able to just, you know, if we just got cash in their hands, the idea would be that they would just spend it. But then to also get it to a level where it used to be, people would also have to spend money frivolously, even though it's in a time of need and most people against, you know, their instinct is to save their money and not be frivolous. So that that's kind of a base level of economics. I mean, there's other things that are like interest rates or bonds and all that kind of stuff that other people talk about. And those are kind of higher level and I don't even have a full grasp on them. But anyway, buying and selling if any if there becomes a shortage of people being able to buy things or people being able to sell things that's when there are issues that arise in economies so that brings us to today and some bigger conversations that have been taking place so before even before this there had been conversations about that people should be able to have access to sick leave where 
a company would pay for days off for someone in case they became sick. Now, there are some questions, you know, people are like, well, there's the short term where you just take like a day off to get better there. And then there's also discussions about long term extended leave where people have to take months off of work because they need to uh, recover from whatever illness or uh, accident that they had. Then there's also a question about, well, I mean, to a lesser extent, having vacation, but I mean, that's not the most pressing issue. Then there's also a big discussion about having maternity leave where people, you know, want to be able to take time off to spend time with their newly born children in order to help better raise them, spend time with them, all that kind of fun stuff that we know is very beneficial. And it's just at a very human level, very satisfying. And then thirdly, there's been a discussion of universal basic income, which at a very brief level is giving unconditional money to people just for living their lives, even uh, regardless of looking for work or ability to get work or anything. So I my idea. Well, one more thing. And then we had talked previously on another podcast about how, uh, you know, corporate tax on a company may not be the I mean, it may not be the best policy in the world because, you know, corporations inherently are out to make money and a more uh, straightforward way to do it is to tax the income of people who benefit from a company making a lot of money instead of taxing the money of the company. So I, th- this comes under a strain of believing that uh, there should should it, it can be beneficial for companies to have a lesser burden. But I also believe that people should be able to have paid time off for extended periods of time. It would be very beneficial at a time like this for uh, you know all companies to just be able to pay for you know, however many weeks of someone to have paid time off so that the economy can keep running, but then also uh, people stay employed, but companies don't have that much money. So I was wondering if maybe someday there could be a policy where it could be that we all have access to short-term paid time off for sickness long-term paid time off for extended illness or family needs, uh, uh, what was it, uh, parental leave, maternity leave, per, or paternity leave uh, for when a child is born and or vacation time, and have those paid time offs subsidized by the government in a way. So there was uh, one proposal on extended family leave where it's like, well, you know, it's a lot of money for a company to be able to pay for this. So the policy proposal was what if they paid into a social insurance so that everybody could have access to it and the full brunt of it isn't borne by the company. I was like, wow, that's a good idea. Well, what if we just had it that all paid time off by taken by individuals that we you know, at least Evan and I would believe that all people should have was paid 
or not even in full, but in some sort of universal basic income level where there's kind of a floor to it, that this paid time off was at least partially funded by the government because paid time off is a very costly to, to companies. So, you know, it would be funded by a new tax, but then that would mean that everybody would have access to paid time off for sickness, maternity leave, vacation, and all this kind of stuff where it's not putting a massive burden on individual companies and their ability to pay for that on whether people have paid time off. And this could also lead to a mechanism where that could be useful for today or these times where the government could just step in and say, hey, everybody gets six weeks coronavirus time off. We're pointing you know, we're putting the economy on hold, we're shouldering this, and then it already has an automatic mechanism for paying out money to people in order to ensure that the economy stays going, but it's not putting shouldering the financial responsibility on the corporations to take prolonged breaks from earning income and also having to pay employees at the same time. So... Yeah, so I think that that would be an interesting step to take. What you're looking at is basically a great deal of burden shifting because people who have to pay the new tax end up paying higher taxes, but then those who might work in circumstances where they aren't granted paid time off will benefit. Um I think that's a worthwhile social trade-off in that workers have more access to avenues to live their fullest lives without facing an economic penalty, um, where I think it kind of breaks down, not even breaks down, but just doesn't cover everything is actually in a case like this, but I guess I should ask you to clarify. When you say the government says everybody gets, say, six weeks, if that's what you threw out, that's fine for argument's sake. Mm -hmm. Who's everyone to you in that circumstance? Um, everyone who were, I mean, this isn't a, I, I think the avenue you're going to get down is that this isn't to everyone. This is just for people working. Um, yeah. So, this wouldn't this wouldn't this wouldn't be replacement for other parts of the safety net, but this would be something for people who are working um, to be able to have time off. Okay, um, but see, then you understand how to me that's not an adequate crisis response. It wouldn't be the only response. I'm just saying to create a mechanism for which um, people who are working can have these times off that everybody says, you know, that they should or, you know, tend to believe that they should and to take the burden off of individual corporations from having to pay that out because it is very costly for to pay for no labor to, mm -hmm. you know, um, because be you have had. to pay for someone to do the job, and then you also pay the person who's not doing the job. Right. I get so, that. Yeah, so this wouldn't be the sole response. And my thought would, this could be built upon a greater universal basic income where it's not so much 
um, just everybody given a, you know, there there are the versions of universal basic income that are more universal, where it's just everybody gets a check for $1,000 every month. I believe a bit more in a version of universal basic income that ensures a minimum level of income versus instead of just a uh, everybody just getting money. So like a minimum income of a thousand dollars every month. So this could be baked into how paid time off works for companies. But this isn't a whole solution, a holistic solution for a response to the coronavirus or to poverty in general. So I know we're not really going to get into this because we need more time. Um, But in terms of basic income, I definitely am on the basic income side, side universal as opposed to a minimum income. Um, Because I, I just think that the more complicated you make things, and not even that this is terribly complicated, but every level of complexity leaves someone out. It's another opportunity for someone or something to slide through the cracks. And so if what we're talking about is in general an expansion of the social safety net to cover workers who need time off, I guess that's all well and good. Um, it's It just seems like if we can guarantee that floor of living we don't we wouldn't need to worry about covering employment at all covering employment like how so as in if everyone has a basic income everyone has enough money isn't that essentially paying workers whether or not they are able to take paid time off because you know, some jobs won't, but a lot of jobs you can you can take unpaid time off if you want. And so if the government is already giving a, a UBI check and a stipend, it's pretty much the same thing as what you're proposing, just yeah, specifically you, tied to employment. Well, I mean, this this would be part of a grander experiment. But then also part of this is to take the burden off of companies, because that is. I mean, while they do bear the cost of some things like safety and, um, well, the safety and the environment, big things like that, paid time off is just a big expense with uh, no real gains besides a rejuvenated workforce. And it, you know, again, this is born through the idea that we we have discussions about every how everyone needs paid maternity leave or that that should be a right to that people need extended family leave or sick leave to be able to afford to recover from an illness that or an injury that takes them a long time and those are very costly to businesses and they're quite stingy because of it um you know especially like with a workman's comp came or you know lost wages those can be very expensive so i'm just thinking what if we were able to offload those expenses from individual corporations and take that on to the public dollar because we believe that all people should be entitled to those. All right, let's let's get it down to brass tacks and we can express the common ground. Um, it's good for people to be able to 
take time off their work but not have their incomes affected. We agree that that's a social good. However, that's expensive for companies, so what if the government paid for it and then we could have it and not, you know, companies wouldn't be incentivized to try to cut back. That's good. Right. I, I accept. Because because one thing that I want to express is that, like, um, in a movie b- both Evan and I have seen, Where to Invade Next by Michael Moore, he, like, goes to Italy and he talks with people in Italy and they're like, oh, we have all this time off where you got a vacation next week. And then in a few months, we got a two week vacation. And then we still have six weeks that we haven't used. And it's a whole lot of paid time off. But that paid time off costs a lot of money. And because that makes the price of employing someone higher. And because of that, there are a whole lot more people unemployed in you know, uh, countries like Italy, like Italy before this finance, the financial crisis has had an unemployment rate of 9.7%, which is right near the highest it was during the height of the great recession. And everybody was freaking out in the United States and in Spain, they have a rate of 14.2 and in France, 8.5 before all this coronavirus stuff hit. So it's very costly to provide very good benefits to people. So my thought is, is that since the government can take on a greater share of social or uh, ability to pay for things, that to ensure some basic level of benefits that we believe people should have and be able to have in life, we should, you know, it could be more advantageous to provide those from the uh, from the government and not put the whole burden onto corporations. I mean, and I say corporations, but I mean any company that employs people, whether it's one person or a thousand people and no matter how much money they make. So that's where sure. I'm so, at. Yeah. My only pushback against that last uh, bit of information is going to be based in David Graeber's bullshit jobs, which we discussed on the podcast a while back, in that um, I don't necessarily believe in employment for the sake of employment. And if we have an adequate social safety net, I'm not really concerned with the unemployment rate. Mm, I think it's better for people to get most of their, uh, you know, their they're uh, living out of the free market versus being on the dole but um, why what is it if, if they can support themselves what does it matter because then they're you know even if they don't feel like they're contributing they're still contributing something companies don't just employ people for the fuck of it i mean there is some part of it where they're like oh there are a few jobs out there where they employ them to make it seem like they're doing but i'm not convinced that that's a wide variety of a job and the difference between a 3.5% uh, unemployment rate and a 9.7% unemployment rate. Well, I think uh, David Graeber would certainly quarrel with that, uh, that response. Essentially, there are plenty of jobs that can do something that aren't actually pro-social and rewarding to people's lives. Um, but I think maybe the point that we're missing is that being on the dole doesn't really, as you put it, doesn't really take people out of the workforce, even in great numbers, at least not from 
the experiments that have been tried with universal basic income. In fact, um, as Ritger Bregman reports, the, in, in countries and municipalities where universal basic income has been implemented, labor force participation remains at 99% of pre-UBI levels. People want to work. They want to be productive. And that doesn't change where from where they're getting their main source of income. Well, let me put it also this way. I'm for a basic income, but the oftentimes the uh, the social welfare benefits that are offered by these European countries, such as like Italy and France, are very much more generous than a basic income. So in France, um, when you are ready to leave a job, it is commonplace that instead of just quitting, you ask for you ask your employer to get uh, I think they call it a conventional termination. And that way they fire you and in French law, you get 100% of your salary for two years if you get fired after getting fired which is a level of benefits that I don't think anybody is arguing for in the United States. Um, so I under, I, I'm fine with a you know basic income, but the kind of very high level of benefit that are afforded to people of some of these European states is, is just a lot. But, I mean, I guess we sort of intuitively can say, yeah, that's, that's kind of crazy because it's so much beyond what – we can even fathom, but what what makes it too much? You know, obviously it's more expensive, but France has a functioning economy. They they appear to be scoring well on many levels of social health. Why? I, I guess why does that break the bank for you? Uh, you know, it just seems like the the business community within. I mean, it has a functioning economy. But there are definitely points of uh, there has been uh, unrest in France that has happened, mostly because, I mean, there was the one, uh, the Yellow Jacket protests where they were protesting a rise in gas taxes because French, uh, the people in the French countryside who aren't within cities feel like they have not been given the adequate economic opportunities to be able to thrive. And through that, they felt the gas tax was entirely more uh you know inhibitive on their lives than uh it should have been so that they were they were upset because they was making it more costly when they were already not making more like people want to be uh have greater economic success and if things were uh being doled out or dished out more equitably in the united states people would um believe that economic growth was a lot better and i believe economic growth is good and through you know through economic growth you're supposed to get a better standard of living through the current tax system we have not had it in the united states but if we were to have a better system that was more redistributive uh, uh higher economic outcomes would lead to better standards of living for more people and that is inherently a good thing well absolutely but the, the key ingredient is that you need to have the political infrastructure there to take advantage of economic growth. Economic growth in and of itself is kind of a free-for-all. It benefits whoever can get it. A, a rising tide doesn't lift all boats if 
not everyone has a boat in the first place. So I think that that's definitely a non-negligible factor that the the political needs to supersede the economic in our considerations to make sure that gains are well distributed. Yeah, my policy, the one that I put forward is both redistributed and making it able for more economic activity to occur. So I, I don't see the issue. I mean, I, I, I guess could it... Go ahead. No, I mean there's there's, there's no issue per se with your policy other than it just seems like you're bristling at other policies that don't necessarily have a lot of drawbacks in and of themselves i mean people trying to stay on unemployment from the government that pays 100 percent of their salary i think is not a great thing because when they were getting paid that salary, they were creating economic output. But when they're just getting it from the government, that they're not doing anything. I mean, I believe that they should be able to have some form of income and that people who take, you know, do the work that isn't necessarily paid in society should be able to get more. But I don't believe that people just kind of wholesale not doing anything isn't a public good. But I just think that that's kind of a phantom problem. Like we've seen, even if people have their basic needs met, the amount that want to just coast is is around 1%. And it's mostly made up of new mothers who are taking advantage of maternity leave and students who are trying to get more education. So I don't know. And, and if we're talking about incentivizing people to not work a universal basic income that's given to everyone takes care of that because you don't lose benefits if you start working. So there's really no incentive not to work. And we found that most people will do that to continue to work. Yeah. I I mean, to me, I, when I, I mean, I guess this has become the universal basic income chat, but I tend to fall not on the, you know, pure just give everybody a thousand dollars a month uh, scheme because that is very costly. And I believe that there could be um, easier, you know, administrative ways that could become automatic that could pay out people um, on a basis that is on a sliding scale where like every dollar you earn, you learn you lose like 10 cents of your Uh, original universal basic income or a quarter or whatever it is. Um, And that would be a better way to deal with it. But that's just my personal opinion. Cost is definitely a legitimate concern and not something that I have worked out by any means. But doesn't that create the exact problem that you're saying you want to avoid? If if working gets people, if, if people can make the same amount of money working and not working, say, you know, if I, I can make $1,000 a month at a job or I can make $1,000 a month not working, but the minimum income kicks in, that incentivizes a lack of work versus I make $1,000 a month basic and then whatever I make on top of that can just go cash into my pocket. That to me is the system where there's no incentive to stay home if you can make more money. 
Well, yeah, but you would be, you, you know, every dollar you would earn, you would essentially be increasing your income by either, you know, how whatever dollar minus how much of the phase out. So like, you know, make 90 cents more, 75 cents more, um, you would still be making more money. So, but isn't I mean, a one if, to one ratio more in a greater incentive than a 90? Yeah, but then, ratio? but then it costs a whole lot to give checks to everybody. I mean, the, I mean, these are the questions, you know, I think that, you know, in order to have a program that can be more cost effective, it should be means tested because a universal basic income is truly very expensive, even in the modern, you know, modern monetary theory worlds, something of that level just hasn't been able to get worked out yet. Um, now that doesn't mean it can't be. And if it could, that would be a, a good thing to have, but I just want to shoot for something that I could feel, I mean, I think could be a little bit more cost effective and could actually be implemented. And through the narrow, um, bit that I was thinking of earlier, which is trying to help make sure that people can have time off from work and make it so that it's not so burdensome on companies Look, while doing time off it. from work is an improvement to the status quo and i don't i i don't really have an issue with it okay i just you know sometimes in these conversations i i get a little frantic whether you know proposing something better and then it's like well it's not the most better and i'm like yeah but it's better I mean, well, I, you know, I, I feel like that's uh, that's not necessarily the dynamic of what was going on, um, because I think we ultimately have different views of what the best is. And, you know, that's what that's what I think these democratic debates kind of boiled down to is is people were, were getting sort of flustered at Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren to a degree saying, oh, well, you know, they just don't want to actually get anything done. But I think what 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 that forum is and what this forum can be is an opportunity for us to say, well, what is the end game? What is the best best you know we i appreciate your policy and it's interesting to discuss um but at the end of the day we're, we're not we don't have to we're, we're not constrained by the auspices of actually getting something done and so well you see but we that's what the, i'm trying to think of to, is trying to think of like a creative policy that could get done that could create better good I mean, I could come out here and say that everybody should be able to have whatever they need all the time. And I mean, I, that's an overcharacterization of what you say. But that, I mean, I could come out and just say what I believe is good and what everybody should have. But my part of, you know, what I like to do is think of things that could happen and are a little bit more obtainable. That's something I like to think about is policies that maybe you could get buy-in, you know, you could get buy-in from the business community to get something like this done because, you know, paying for paid time off is a big expense for them. And they know that if they want to keep people, they have to pay it. So they're, you know, some ways forced into paying for it. But then also we, but we believe that they're not giving out enough for it. So maybe we could have a system where partially the government pays for some of it in order to take that off their books and be able to allocate that capital more efficiently to help grow economies and get more you know, people a better standard of living. 
But then I could also, you know, I just believe that people should have more time off and that, you know, if we thought, you know, really, really big, then we could just, you know, make sure that everybody has what they need to do through a government position. But I don't know if that's ever going to happen. So I believe that, you know, looking for possibilities where clever policy that could get buy in from multiple areas that could lead to better outcomes is something I just like to think about. Okay, so if we're considering who we can get buy-in, I think we also have to consider who we'll get opposition from. So who's paying this this tax? Where's that coming from? Oh, that's coming. I mean, the the fullest extent of where the tax money is coming from is. I mean, I I haven't figured out the base level of it. I mean, it would the idea would be that it would be coming from an income tax, but you know people have a hard time swallowing even minor uh, increases to income tax for real tangible goods. So that's also a very uphill battle. Yeah. And with, you know, if if we're talking about it nuts and bolts, it's going to be tough to get anything done in a world of filibuster. So maybe next week we'll talk about how to get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that that was me trying to uh propose maybe uh maybe it's something that could be worthwhile because i have definitely uh you know there was a podcast i listened to on the weeds where they brought on someone who's been trying to uh bring on uh, legislation for extended family leave extended sick leave or uh, maternity care where it's based on a system of insurance uh, where or uh, or kind of like an insurance fund that's funded by the government where, you know, you know, you know, there's going to be a five percent chance that, you know, one of your employees is going to have to uh, take time off for an extended period of time. Not everybody. So we'll fund a program where you pay six percent tax on every dollar or or uh or a sixth of a cent. I forget how much it actually was. And then it just guarantees that everybody has paid time off for maternity leave and or uh, other family issues. So maybe extending that to all forms of paid time off could be beneficial. All righty. So for our main topic today, we are going to be going over uh, the kind of state of, but also the ideas floating around. What do you do about democracy in times of crisis, especially the ones that we are, you know, what we're experiencing now? And... This is a conundrum to be had because on some level you don't want to put a halt to democratic activities because you want to, well, democracy is kind of the seen as the ultimate social good. It's what you got to do. It's what the whole system is predicated on. And if you don't aren't able to vote, then, you know, the system doesn't have legitimacy. But then also in times like this where it could be dangerous for people to go out and vote, what do you do? And this is brought on mostly because um, Wisconsin has decided to keep going forward with its plans to have a primary on Tuesday, April 7th, um, which I live in Wisconsin. 
And this has been a point of contention with many mayors across the state asking for uh, it to be postponed until later. But in through some great political maneuvering last week, the Republican controlled uh, General Assembly voted to keep the election going on as planned. Um, and Tony Evers had, you know, I think, you know, uh, last week or two weeks, some, at some point they had increased some mail by or uh, vote by mail measures that they would expand who was able to vote by mail and then also extended the deadline for that by a week to get it postmarked, which it otherwise wouldn't have. But Republican the Wisconsin Republicans are fighting that in the court and it already got, uh, you know, ruled on by an appeals court. So they're actually taking it to the Supreme Court for them to try and rule on it. Uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Yes. No. The, oh, the U.S. Supreme Court. It has gone past the Wisconsin Supreme Court, buddy. It is going oh, wow. to the. So, well, the Supreme Court hasn't agreed to hear the case yet. But, but that's the next level. Yeah, that's the next level is the Supreme Court. Oh, they have they 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 exhausted the Wisconsin Supreme Court. They went to federal appeals court and now they're up to uh, the Supreme Court um, to try and uh, get rid of these extended deadlines for vote by mail. Um, even in the face of all this going on, you know, the news article that I read was that. In Milwaukee, there are normally 180 polling locations, but at this time, they're only able to guarantee five polling locations based on the amount of number of poll workers they're able to get. So, and some municipalities don't even believe that they will have enough poll workers to fully run one polling location. So... We're running at a cliff here in Wisconsin. Tony Evers, the Democratic governor, is trying to get it pushed back. But the Republican-controlled General Assembly, which is also Wisconsin, is one of the most heavily gerrymandered states in the union. Um, because of that, they, for whatever reason, they don't want to uh, push the voting deadline or the 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 voting day back so we're running into a situation where nobody's really going to be able to vote and then with the places that they do go vote in are going to be very busy and then there's not even you know i requested a ballot by mail they gave an extra day to request that but i don't know if i'm going to get it in time and if you know what all the legal hoopla that's going to go on of whether that's going to count or not so it is a quagmire right now um, because yeah, sounds like it because in some ways you, you, like I, I said in the kind of preamble to this, you got to keep the democratic process going, but if it's a case like this where, you know, we're just waiting it out for a few weeks and then hopefully, you know, in like a month's time or two months time, everything's going to be all right then it would make sense to push it back to then. And then that's not even interfering with the general election. But, you know, who knows if this keeps going on, you know, what things will be like later on. I mean, they've already, most states have delayed their Democratic primary voting days. 
the the Democratic National Convention has been pushed back by a, a month or two, if I remember correctly, which is also supposed to take place in Milwaukee. So we're just kind of at a, 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 a mini crisis of democracy right now of what do we do about this? Yeah. And then there on the national level, Trump has refused to ensure that in the general election, uh, people would be able to vote by mail or, you know, to put forward policies that would make it more readily available for states to offer vote by mail. Um, so it's it just seems like there's a uh, a Republican opposition to people voting. I wonder what's going on there. Being now, a little facetious. Is, yes. Um, is there a, a, Trump is obviously not supportive of vote by mail and extending that to the states. But is there anything that states can do to initiate that process themselves? Oh, completely. The the part of it is that voting is almost entirely up to the states. So there is the Federal Election Commission, but they're more oversight instead of guideline setting. So each state can decide how they vote um, and how they ensure voting for everyone and what they want to do with that. Um, You know, the federal government can provide assistance, can provide guidance, but ultimately it's up to the states to how they decide to vote. Yeah, this goes back to how some candidates aren't even on ballots in certain states because, you know, each state has their own requirements to get on the ballot. The ballot is entirely decided by states and municipalities. So So then do you think states will take up this mantle? I would hope so. And push for... Okay. But you, I think maybe we're getting the sense that there will be... Uh, a partisan component to which states do and which states don't. Well, yeah, I mean, in uh, I believe it's in Washington. They already do all their voting by mail anyway. Um, I believe er, uh, earlier on the podcast you had said Oregon. It's somewhere out in the Pacific Northwest. One of those two. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they um, as me from Midwest, they may as well be the same state. I am sorry. <laughs> Two people out there, if you believe otherwise, but they seem to be about the same to me. One has Seattle and the other doesn't. So, um, but yeah, they do all their voting by mail and that's, you know, it works out very well for them. And it seems like in the face of this catastrophe, more Democrats are willing to put forward um, plans to vote by mail or increase voting uh, availability. You know, uh, I believe California has a very strong vote by mail culture that, you know, this is like whenever uh, California is, you know, it's coming down to their vote share. They're always like, oh, wait, wait for it, because people can postmark their ballots, I think, the day of the election. So it takes a long time for those to come in and then to all get counted so their results don't come out for a few days after the election day. Mm -hmm. Um, But then and then in Republican leaning states, I mean, there's already I mean, under normal circumstances, they're doing what they can to restrict the vote. Um, Like in Alabama. No, not Alabama. In Georgia. Uh, the last midterms, they used a uh, 
provision with the American with Disabilities Act to shut down a uh, fair number of polling places in the Atlanta area due to concerns of voter accessibility with for people with disabilities and then proceeded to open no more polling places <laughs> that were compliant. Um, that just show, I mean, to me, that just shows that they weren't trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, have a good faith belief that people with disabilities weren't able to vote at these polling places. So they tried to find better alternatives to better serve that populace. They just used the, uh, powers of whatever rule that they could to close polling locations in order to create longer lines at the ones that still existed. Yeah, it would be wonderful if they were actually concerned about equity and took steps to correct it. But having a polling place that isn't accessible and a polling place that doesn't exist end up with the exact same result for disabled voters. So, yeah, yeah I think your your analysis that it was not done in good faith is pretty accurate. <laughs> and it just runs into this sphere just this concern where it seems like democracy has became a partisan issue and in some ways i mean it makes sense so republicans oftentimes tend to do better in elections that have low turnout because it turns out that the people who are going to vote almost no matter what are older white folks who disproportionately vote in for Republicans. And then Democrats tend to favor situations where there is greater democratization, where more people are able to vote because just kind of in a general sense, more people uh, ally with the, I mean, I don't even know if it's the policies or what, or if it's the party or what have you, but there is just a general belief that under high turnout elections, Democrats do better. And that is somewhat borne out by the data. So there is this situation where even something that two groups of people could kind of maybe even possibly come together and say is a public good is in fact a partisan issue and directly related to how they're able to uh, you know, work politically. You know, it's like uh, we have conversations of that, you know, I believe that Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico should be states, but then it can also be a very partisan issue because most likely Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico would vote for Democrats. And I think that, you know, in some ways would be a public good. Um, hell, I mean, you know. The political leanings of states is what caused the damn civil war. Um, so it's just uh, we're at a time of crisis and, you know, we're lucky that now it's just kind of the primary, you know, the selection of the, you know, who are going to be the candidates. But if this goes on much longer and it ends up, you know, in some ways being uh, affecting the general election, then. I mean, there will be, I mean, there is, you know, it's reasonable to worry about the primary election, but the general election is, is extra worrisome. Yeah, because on the one hand, 
it's a system that kind of can't be stopped you know the what what do we do if we you know we can't really postpone the election then we have a president trump or not who is well in this case it is trump but in you know in the sort of general sense you would have an abstract no matter who it would be who who gets an extra part of their term that's that's not borne out in our legal framework we don't really have a way and not that i'm aware of maybe you can correct me but I i don't think we have a way to postpone the transfer of power you know um and so there have been times when so the president used to uh so the day we vote on hasn't changed but the president used to assume office in like may i think like back in the 1800s and they moved it up to january um so that's one part of it but i don't think the day of the vote has ever been moved i mean that is that is just such a part of the constitution like that is you know that is hardwired into the american that's the thing we do yeah yeah um the second you know the first tuesday of the month after the first monday is (laughs) the day we have the election no matter what and i don't think that there's any way within the American political system to move that. I mean, there's some calls of Congress to try and change it, but I don't know if that's something that they could change. Um, Yeah, it would might require an amendment, which would be very difficult to to undertake. Yeah. And then we run into the situation, you know, this is the, kind of fear that I mean I personally have about Trump and some others have is that you know while he seems to be generally ineffective at wielding the power of the state to do most of the things that he says he wants it to do he he has at least expressed in at other times that he you know believe that you know he should run you know, get to serve three terms because he had the first one stolen from him. And, you know, we'll say that, you know, maybe uh, give praise to Xi Jinping in over over in China because he got declared ruler for the rest of his life. And it's just kind of spooky because yeah, I don't see Trump, you know, in a faced with a situation where he loses or is given power, you know, just the chance to stay in power, regardless of what he does with that. I don't know how long that would go on for. Mm-hmm. Like, could, could you just keep declaring a state of emergency and saying <laughs> that just kind of indefinitely he'll remain president? I mean, that's how you get constitutional breakdown. That's how societies and civilizations fall apart. And I am hoping that's not the same. I mean, democracies have survived war. I mean, we had elections through the world wars. Um, Other countries had elections, you know, that, you know, I think uh, England had an election while, you know, at some point during the bombings of London. Um, So it can be done at times of dire circumstances, but uniquely this one, this situation is caused, you know, is made worse by people being near each other and going out and doing things. And in order to vote, oftentimes you need to go out and do things around people. Yeah. And 
The thing is, though, that while definitely all these concerns are legitimate, I guess it just seems to me like <laughs> we're going to have the election and the the thing that's going to happen is just ridiculously low voter turnout that calls into question the legitimacy of this election's ability to reflect the will of the people. Um, that, to me, is is the, the real fear that we have the election, but the results are really fucky and we have to go through the next four years with everyone rightfully complaining about how we're unhappy with the resultant government. Yeah. Well, and it's it feels kind of sad that, you know, it seems like the United or here in the United States, we're facing a circumstance where people are believing less and less in the the legitimacy of the governments that get elected and at the same time we're also uh you know limits are being placed and accessibility to elections is a partisan issue so it's less able to be taken care of effectively Mm -hmm. so it's facing its legitimacy crisis and for one of the parties Um, It is, you know, at least in the short term, very directly useful to them to be anti-democratic. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're just kind of at a uh, an interesting point. Yeah. So I would like to redirect the conversation back to Wisconsin just for a bit, because this is the place where it is the least theoretical, like on Tuesday They are voting in person. And so I was able to watch a video put out by Eau Claire County in which they explained some of the modifications that they're going to be making. And Joe, I I don't know if you've seen this video or if it's similar in your county or what's going on, Um, but we can get your thoughts on it. So the voting precautions are tape marked six foot intervals for lines to vote. (laughs) If you are exhibiting symptoms, and only if you're exhibiting symptoms, they will do curbside voting for you in Eau Claire County. (laughs) Someone will bring your ballot to your car. Um, You have hand sanitizer at both the entrance and exit. You are, they're not reusing pens. So you have a big table of pens and you pick one up as you enter and then you put it in a bin as you leave. Um, the, The booths that they have are still clustered together but they're going to be controlling the flow of people and according to the video cleaning them frequently <laughs> no 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 more specifics given than frequently so obviously i think that it's a good attempt but there's a lot of inadequacies there joe what's what are your thoughts about those measures i mean i it just seems like people who are doing what they can which is you know it's always good to see people who are making trying to take a situation that shouldn't be happening and making the best of it. You know, it's kind of like when you see those GoFundMes for, uh, or a heartwarming story when someone is able to have a GoFundMe to fund their surgery that was, you know, life-giving. And in some ways, it's really nice that they were able to get that money and do it, but they just shouldn't have been in the situation where they needed to make a GoFundMe in the beginning. It's kind of like that. It's nice to see people doing what they can to, you know, coming together to face an obstacle and do it the best that they can. But this is an obstacle that people really shouldn't be having to face. Yeah, 
I think the biggest thing that kind of gets me is that the voting booths booths are still close together, and we just have this this vague promise that oh yeah we'll clean them, um, yeah. but um, also none of that accounts for the information that you shared with me at the beginning of this segment that you know none of this none of this works if you don't have poll workers so that's not really accounted for nor nor can it be accounted for. Um, I'm because, worried about the lines that are going to form if you have to stay six feet away from people. It just seems like it's really going to be a clusterfuck on Tuesday. I'll tell you right now, the last time I went and voted, I believe that every single one who was working that poll would be greatly affected by coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> it was not mm-hmm. the top stock out there. And not, <laughs> I mean, I mean, who's going to go and be a poll worker, mostly older retirees who don't have much to do. So, I mean, it makes sense, but those are the people who are most likely to um, contract and have issues with that. So, um, you know, one of the projects that I've wanted to do is become a poll worker someday, but um, I guess I missed the boat on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe someday. Who knows? Yeah, that's the dream, you know. Yeah, to think of something good that I could do instead of doing it. It's almost <laughs> as good as doing it. You know, it has the same satisfaction. I thought of it. That's great. My brain worked. Well, it's, but it's, doing it, eh. you know, it's like how your brain gets the same, uh, you know, dopamine rush if you almost win at a slot machine as it is for actually winning. Oh shit, really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is what they this is what so many apps and slot machines and so many things in you know, in the modern attention economy know is that if you have a situation where it looks like you're about to win but end up, you know, being real close and not winning, it gives the same dopamine response as actually winning. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I forget what context that is, but oh yeah. So I feel like I'm helping, even though I, I get the dopamine rush of feeling like I'm a person who could help, but not actually helping. So, oh man. So we're going to see, this will be, I mean, people are already upset about the initial primaries that happened in, where was it? Illinois and somewhere else. Uh-huh. During the beginning of this outbreak, yeah, uh, Illinois, I forget. Yeah, I forget the other states who did it, and they got because Ohio back. postponed. They pushed back. Yeah, crazy times we're living in, and we're all just kind of doing it as we can. You know, I'm uh, hell. I was uh, re-listening to a podcast from about two months ago, and they were like. Yeah, and um, in the Goldman Sachs projections, you know, which are normally pretty good for like an economy, they say there's about a, you know, one percent chance we go into recession in 2020, which you know we laugh at now, but that just shows how, you know, one percent isn't zero percent, and uh, these small things can come out of nowhere and just wreak havoc. We're at that one percent. This is the one percent of scenarios. We have done it. Um... Yeah, I guess there's just a bunch of information coming out about past politicians who have been really concerned about viruses. I guess that was uh, something of an obsession for George Bush the Younger. 
and you know he did what he could but as has come up recently it doesn't really do anything if the guy who comes in after you or even a couple of guys after you doesn't build on it and in this case actively undermines it so yeah uh we just want a better world yeah and we've got to figure out how to uh restore faith in the democratic process and honestly it kind of doesn't come from us it comes from our leaders actually caring about restoring democracy and building upon democratic institutions to ensure the full franchise enshrined by our legal framework well and it's just it's um I mean, it's just curious because the way a functioning democracy has looked to us in the past was through bipartisanship and compromise. And, you know, that was because of situations that were had in the past that led it to, you know, be able so that could happen. But now we're in a situation where, um, you know, partisanship you know, is a winning message and, you know, from why we're polarized again and just um, how we, you know, we need to, you know, you could either have a system where it's based on cooperation between the parties or allow one of the parties to just rule and we're a system built on letting the, you know, making the two groups work together, but they're not work. I mean, in some ways they're working together, like, um, you know, they passed this first round of stimulus or they call it the third round of whatever bills for the coronavirus. Um, but, you know, I have full faith that once a, you know, if a Democrat gets elected in November, then all of a sudden we can't afford to do anything. Mm-hmm. Oh, can't do that. We're going to restore conservatism to what it should have been the whole time, which is caring about deficits. <laughs> so, yeah, here we are. So here we are. I think this uh, brings us to an end segment. Uh, oh, boy. Are we going to go over these fan mails? You know, let's uh, let's let's lock it in as the end segment for next week. We yeah. can both have an opportunity to go back over them. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, and uh, let's end with a solicitation for more viewer mail. We we want to get back into covering some viewer responses on the podcast. So send us your questions. Send us your comments. What are you doing during this time of shelter in place and social distancing? What are your favorite video games? Yeah. What policies do you like for family leave i guess next Uh, next week we're definitely gonna go over uh the emails that we have gotten so if you want to send anything to us any ideas um or if you have a unique perspective or any perspective on this crisis that has been happening shoot us an email and uh yeah we're, we're thinking about people who are working the front lines and food service or a grocery store or if you've been you've been furloughed are you a health professional give us a sense of who who our listener base is and we want to hear how this has been impacting you yeah so um let me see 
uh, you know, let's end it. You know, this is a time of people just watching a whole ton of shit. What have you been watching, Evan? I've been catching, well, for one, King of the Hill. That's the show I'm going through. Uh-huh. Um, I'm, I'm near the end of it. I'm into season like 10 out of 13. So that's been fun. Good show. Never really got into it, but um, now I am, and it's been wonderful. So actually, it's good that I didn't get into it earlier because now I, I have it to discover now. Yeah. Um, miniseries, The Plot Against America is airing on HBO and I have come into the good fortune of an HBO password recently so I've been able to keep up with that that is a really good alternate history series which is set in an America in which Charles Lindbergh runs for president and defeats FDR and keeps America out of World War II and also pushes America closer to fascism. So that's halfway done. A new episode will be coming out uh, on Monday, I believe, the day that this podcast drops. So mm-hmm. maybe we could talk about that more. Joe, that would, I bet that would interest you. You like alternate history dramas, probably. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like uh, Evan. You are the one person in my life to most speak to my taste in, um, you know, media like you probably know better than I do what I like. <laughs> Check it out. If you like, you know, in terms of just like production quality, I think it's got what you're looking for. Ooh. You know, it's HBO, so it's it's what oh, it yeah. is, you know. Yeah. Um so check that out. Um, and then I've been trying to catch up on some movies. One that I saw recently that really has stuck with me is a movie called The Square. It's a 2017 Swedish film about a controversial art installation and the increasingly chaotic life of the museum director. It's a movie that kind of teases apart what role art plays in our world. And of course, there's obviously the art museum in the film, but the film itself is a work of art. So it's very self-conscious and self-reflective in a way that I found to be very profound. It's long, outrageous, angry, and I loved it. And it's on Hulu right now if you think you would enjoy a two and a half hour Swedish film like I do. But you got to watch Tiger King. Yeah, is that what? So you've been watching Tiger King? Oh, I, I, believe? I, I watched it like a week ago. It was fucking great. <laughs> Somehow. Here's my. Go ahead. Uh, here's my critique, and it's not of Tiger King. It's of, uh, I guess, society in general is. You know, the, the the draw of Tiger King is all these crazy twists, but I, I've seen them all as memes now. Would I really get anything out of just seeing them presented linearly in the Netflix series? You know, I, I mean, I'm not opposed to watching it. I'm not trying to be Mr. Oh, well, it's popular, so I don't care. But, you know, I know about Carol Baskin and I know... <laughs> You know, the the gist of Joe Exotic and what happens to him. I know where he is now. Is it worth it for me to watch it? I don't know. It could be. I mean, I, I uh, I'm actually someone who kind of enjoys spoilers because I like to see how we get there. I'm like, hmm. I don't care about I don't care so, about so much what happens. I like the like the path to get there. So I I think spoilers are overrated, but that, you know, that's also just me. Um, I I can guarantee you all of Tiger King is not spoiled to you. There is. Okay. There. 
the the stuff you've seen is the biggest stuff or the most you know explosive or the meme worthy stuff but they there's no way it's all been spoiled for you because <laughs> somehow a real life story has as many twists and turns as this one had and i am surprised that it was able to have an escalating story arc for as long as it did <laughs> uh well so, it's it's on the list it's in the yeah. it's, it's in the mix Anything else you've been watching, Joe? Um, I recently kind of rewatched. I, I had it on the background while I was working from home, but uh, um, I think it was uh, Oliver Stone's Untold Truth or the History They Don't Want You to Tell You or um, what is it called? It was like a mini series, uh, Untold History of the United States. Um, it's on Netflix. It's a revisionist history of kind of the Cold War. And I will see you got to watch the plot against America. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I, I really like it. Um, kind of the gist of it is that the Cold War really didn't need to happen. And if uh, I mean, the idea is that kind of if the United States had had put the right people in place and been a little bit more sympathetic to the plight of the Soviet Union, especially uh, what they did for allied causes in World War II, then there's a possibility that it the Cold War would have not happened and there could have been a strong alliance between the two. So, um, but, you know, I, I, like a, I like a good revisionist history, even if you don't, you know, uh, buy into through the lens that or fully buy into the lens that is presented it's at least useful to see things from another perspective so i like it awesome yeah and i think that's uh that's it for us uh we hope you enjoyed this podcast as always uh, we already solicited your information, so send it to podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. We would like to thank Anthony Hish once again for the music. And my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.